Well, welcome to each of you. It is so good to see you this morning. And I miss those that are not here. It's so good that Jim and Bonnie are back. I know they have been struggling with some illness and um, the Bylers are back. Um, glad that you all are doing better as well. And we think of those who are not here this morning. I know they would like to be. Um, but God is faithful, is he not? And uh, his word is true. Uh, I've been blessed again as I've been uh, preparing for the message this morning. And you know, sometimes when you have a message, you, you're concerned about how people will perceive it. This morning could be a message that you might look at as kind of being a downer, okay? Because I have some serious things I want to, to bring before you this morning, but I want it rather to be an encouragement. It's kind of like if we were uh, going to be in a sports event today, Nathan, and um, I was your coach, and I got the team together, and I said, now, you know, we can handle this team, but there are, there are a couple players on that team that, that are real threats to us, okay? So we need to talk about how we're going to defend against them. You know, maybe that we're talking basketball and they, they're a good ball handler or this fellow's a really good three-point shooter. Or, and so how are we going to double-team? How are we going to guard? How are we going to protect ourselves? That's kind of what I'm hoping you will approach you'll take to the message this morning. Open your Bible to John chapter 17. I want to share verses 6 through 19 and a key verse being verse 15, but then I'm not going to stay here. But I want to present this as a foundation for the message this morning. The title this morning, Kenton, is Holy Worldliness, God's Call for the Church. Now, I dare say that there are few of you in this congregation that have ever put holy and worldliness next to one another. Am I right? I hope this morning you might be able to do that. John 17, verses 6 through 19. This is part of Jesus' uh, prayer for his followers before he was arrested. John 17, 6 through 19. Jesus praying says this, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee, for I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee. And they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. For they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine. And I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Verse 15 is a key verse for the foundation of this morning's message. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. The church has a double calling. First, we are called to live in the world. Jesus said, I pray not that thou would take them out of the world, we are called to live in the world. But secondly, we are called not to conform to the evil or to keep ourselves from the evil of the world. You see, the first is a call to the world. The second is a call to holiness. The first is a call to not isolate ourselves from the world. The second is to live in pursuit of the character of Christ and his kingdom rather than being sucked in by the evil ambitions of the world around us. And this morning we have no liberty to respond to one of those calls without responding to the other. Indeed, we are not granted allowance to preserve our holiness by isolating ourselves from the world, nor may we sacrifice our holiness by conforming to the world. You see, escapism is the one temptation. Conforming or conformism on the other hand, is the other temptation. And equally, those are forbidden by Christ. Instead, we are called to answer both of those calls with faithful obedience, with engagement and separation from evil. Thus, the words I put together this morning, holy worldliness. We are exposed on every side to cultural pressures today, unlike any generation before us in America. And between yielding to the two temptations of escapism or isolation and conforming, the latter is more common in our time. There was a time in this country when there was a great temptation for people of faith to isolate themselves. 
And there are some groups that still have chosen to do that. Even to live in communes. To totally try to create barriers between themselves and the world. But today the greater temptation that believers are succumbing to is conforming to the evil about them. We're exposed to cultural pressures that are incompatible with the lordship of Jesus Christ. And yet they are nevertheless, they are demanding, if not our participation, they are demanding our tolerance and acceptance. And that we are not able to grant if we are to be obedient to the lordship of Christ and the word of God. Believers who capitulate to the pressures of the culture around us compromise their integrity. We blunt our witness, our testimony, and it actually can become a threat to our actual spiritual life. You know, one of the major themes that we find throughout Scripture is God's call for His people, for His possession, for His glory to be different from the world around them. A world that rejects Him. A world that lives for the desires of human nature. A world that is governed and empowered by Satan himself, the prince of the power of the, of the earth. God over and over and over again says, be holy. Not be happy, be holy. Why? For I am holy. And we find that command in the four major aspects of Scripture. We find that in the law. We find that in the prophets. We find that in the gospels. And we find that in the epistles. Let me just point some examples. In the law, for instance, in Leviticus 18.1, God said, do not follow the practices of the pagan cultures about you, which were the Egyptians, the Canaanites. In the prophets, in 2 Kings 17, verse 15, God said, do not imitate the heathen nations about you. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, 8, as we look at the Gospels, in reference to the pagan Romans, do not be like them. And in the epistles, Romans 12, 2, for example, Paul writes, Do not conform any longer to the fashionable lusts of the world around you. Notice it's the evil that we are not to conform to. It's not to isolate from the people. It's the evil. This is a radical call to nonconformity to the evil of the surrounding culture. Now, what we need to ask ourselves today is, what are the pressures in our culture today to which we are forbidden to conform? What are the contemporary trends in our day and time which are threatening to envelop and engulf the church against which we need to be on guard? Now, there are several this morning that I could discuss, and we've talked about some in the last couple months, and we're going to be talking about some more in weeks subsequent. But this morning, what I want to direct our attention to are three general attitudes 
ways of thinking that I think we need to be on guard. Three threats for this competition I was talking to Nathan about. Okay? Three threats. Ways of thinking. So this morning I'm going to focus on that rather than I'll introduce some specific areas and we'll talk about those more in depth later in subsequent messages. But suffice it this this morning for us to identify and understand three primary challenges to the church in our time. And, And in each case... You know, there, there's some big words that I'll use. I'll try to break that down so that you understand exactly what I'm talking about. I want us to understand the trend, what its challenge or threat is to the church, and how we need to respond to it. And I'm calling these three challenges. The first of those is the challenge of pluralism. Now, you students in school know what plural means, right? You have singular, and you have plural. Plural is more than one. Well, what do we mean when we talk about Pluralism. Listen, the church is called to be a community of truth. Now, 250 years ago, leaders of Western civilization had a lot of confidence in the ability of men, of people, to be able to reason and discover truth and disseminate it, to pass it along to the next generation. Today, that confidence is gone. The only confidence we have today in a, in, as Western civilization is that we have no confidence. The only truth is what seems to be true to me. And that may be quite different than what seems to be true to you. There's no meaning or purpose for our existence. And all we have is a myriad of opinions with no objective criterion by which to judge between them. That's the current state. And the correct term for that line of thinking is pluralism. Pluralism doesn't just affirm that there are a lot of different ideas and opinions and ideologies and religions. That has always been the case. The danger of pluralism is that pluralism demands that all ideologies and religions and opinions be given equal acceptance and affirmed as being valid. Therefore, the church should give up any ambition to convert anybody, much less everybody, to any faith in Jesus Christ as the only way to God. In fact, to those who have embraced pluralism, nothing is more obnoxious than Christians who claim that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. So, how should we respond to today's pluralistic mood when we encounter it? When you encounter it in the marketplace, when you encounter it among people that you come in contact with? First of all, with great humility... And with no element of superior, superiority or arrogance, we must maintain objective truth that God has revealed himself to the world, not only as creator and sustainer, but supremely in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, who became an historical human being who died and rose again, to fulfill God's plan for man's salvation. 
Jesus is the rock on which the church is built. And the church has no liberty to tamper with its own foundations. The church's calling is to defend and preserve this truth and to proclaim it to the whole world. The church is called to be a community of truth. Now at this point, notice our final declaration of truth is not in the uniqueness of certain applications of truth. We must first and foremost claim the uniqueness and finality of truth in Jesus Christ. He is unique in his incarnation. He is unique in his atonement. He is unique in his resurrection. He has no successors. He has no rivals. Only in Jesus of Nazareth did God become human in his birth, bear our sin in his death, and triumph over death in his resurrection. He alone is uniquely competent to save. He has no rivals. He has no competitors. He has no successors. And so I beg you this morning, brothers and sisters, join me in lifting up our voices without fear and proclaim that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. And secondly, we must claim and embrace the uniqueness and the authority of biblical teaching. Either the Bible is inspired in an errant word of God, which demands our obedience, or it's merely a recipe book that we peruse and pick and choose what we would like to embrace. I beg you this morning, do not give in to the pressure of pluralism. There is no other legitimate faith but faith in Jesus Christ alone. Well, the second challenge is totally different. (laughs) And that is the challenge of materialism. Now we come to something that's really different. You know, the Western world is almost unbearably affluent in contrast to the developing world. I got a phone call from my oldest son, Ben, Friday morning. He said, uh, well, I got a text. He said, uh, pray for me this week in my flights. I'm leaving today for Indonesia, and I'll be back next Sunday. Um, Ben's going to encounter a part of the world this week again that is so different from here. Even a visit to our local Walmart exposed us to such a broad choice of goods as to be incomprehensible to those who live in much of the country. I have an orphan calf at my house that I'm bottle feeding right now, and I went to Tractor Supply, our little Tractor Supply, to buy some more powdered milk. You know there were six choices of powdered milk for my calf. And of course, we take our wealth for granted because we aren't wealthy. (laughs) None of us here are wealthy, right? We all can point to someone who has so much more than we. But our wealthiness leads to materialism. You see, the challenge for us is, are we going to blindly follow our wealth, the things that we have, to materialism? And what is materialism? Materialism is our attitude toward things. 
You see, materialism, the danger of materialism is not in having things. It's in things having us. In defiance and disobedience of Jesus' teaching, the spirit of the challenge of materialism is beginning to seep into churches. And it's corrupting many professing Christians. Take a look at church buildings. If you would know the financial holdings of churches in America, and yet we are called to minister to the poor. Matthew 6, 19, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth. Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, Beware, beware, beware of covetousness. Wanting, 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 wanting more. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of, of possessions that he has. In other words, life is not only about property and money. And Jesus also warned about having a false ambition to be preoccupied with what we eat and what we drink and what we wear. Our supreme occupation should be the glory of God. The kingdom of God, the name of God. You see, materialism is a constant concern over my needs, my wants, my comfort, my material wealth. And that, my brothers and sisters, is a hopelessly inadequate ambition for the children of God. We are called to be ambitious, but we're called to be ambitious for God. Not called to be ambitious for ourselves. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 4.11 wrote, For I have learned in whatever state I am, therein to be content. And Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we will take nothing out of it. Or as Job put it, what did Job say? Naked, I came into this. I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Have you ever considered this morning that the human life is a pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness? We would be wise to travel light because there's no doubt that we'll leave everything behind. You see, covetous people fall into a trap. Paul wrote to Timothy, the love of money is the root of all evil, or of all kinds of evil. The insatiable desire for more, more, more. We must be concerned about the material world because God has given us a material body and he's placed us in a material universe, right? We always need to remember, though, that we are pilgrims. We're traveling home to God. We're citizens of two kingdoms, but it's so easy for us to forget our citizenship in the eternal kingdom in our preoccupation with the temporary kingdom. Listen, human beings will never be satisfied 
with material things. Jesus said to Satan at his time of temptation, quoting the book of Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone. I don't care what you have, it's not enough. Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is where we can be satiated. That's where we can be satisfied. So may God deliver us in our day and time from materialism. Well, the last challenge I want to mention this morning is the challenge of moral relativism. And boy, that's just tougher language. Let me break it down. All around us today, more than any time in my lifetime, moral values are slipping. There was a time not too long ago when it was believed that absolute truth exists in opposition to error. That there is such a thing as absolute goodness and there is such a thing as absolute evil. But few people seem sure of those statements any longer. People are confused today whether there are absolutes. Instead of truth, as I mentioned, pluralism reigns. And remember, pluralism isn't just the idea that there are many ideas. Pluralism says that all ideas are equally correct. So instead of righteousness, relativism reigns. And moral relativism has definitely permeated our culture, American culture, and it's making its presence known in many churches today. What do I mean about moral relativism? There's an American moral philosopher, Abraham Ebel, who offered the following expression. And I want to just read what he says moral relativism is, and I want you to listen closely and see if any of this sounds familiar with what you are hearing and reading and seeing with people that you relate to today. It all depends on where you are. And it all depends on who you are. It all depends on what you feel. And it all depends on how you feel. Well now, it all depends on how you were raised. And it all depends on what is praised. What's right today might be wrong tomorrow. It all depends on one's point of view. You see, if two opinions agree, then we call that morality. But where there are conflicting viewpoints, well... It all depends. Does that sound familiar? This is the morass of relativism that you young people today are growing up in that's even more critical than when I was your age. Maybe it's not just for young people. Maybe us older adults are facing it more today than we ever have as well. There are so many examples a moral relativism challenge in believers today. And, and as I said, we've looked at some in the last couple months. And in my teaching ministry in the near future, I'll be looking at some others. But this morning, let me just mention the most obvious 
example that I see. And that's in the area of sexual ethics. You know, the Judeo-Christian ethic declared in Scripture that marriage is monogamous, that means with one mate, heterosexual, one male and one female, lifelong union, that means till death separates, and that marriage is the only approved by God context for a relationship of sexual intimacy. That used to be universally accepted. Not universally followed, but it was accepted as truth. But now, even among many professing believers, cohabitation before marriage is widely accepted. Homosexual partnerships are being proposed as an alternative to heterosexual marriage. And what is the result? One in two marriages in America today fail. Listen, marriage does not need to be a gamble. Marriage is not a mystery. A successful marriage. It's a commitment to obedience to the principles that God has outlined. But over and against these and other equally sinful trends, Jesus Christ calls his disciples to obedience to the moral standards of the word of God. And you see, any concept of obedience presupposes that there is an absolute that must be obeyed. You can't be called to obedience to something that's not absolute. Flip over back in your Bible, if you're still in John 17, to John 14. I'm going to conclude with this passage. John 14, verse 21. Because this to me is so insightful. I don't know if you've ever really studied this verse, but I want to really highlight some things this morning. Jesus says in John 14, 21, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Now what do we learn from Jesus' words? One thing we learn is the only way to prove we love Christ is by our obedience to his commands. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. We don't prove we love Christ by making a profession of our loyalty to him. We don't prove that we love Christ by making declarations with our mouth. Simon Peter did that, and mere hours later, denied Christ. We don't prove we love Jesus by our worship. Worship doesn't prove we love him at all. Now, I think you know that I believe worship is important. 
What I'm reminding us is, worship does not prove that we love Christ. The only way Jesus says we prove we love Christ is by our obedience. And notice, Jesus rewards our obedience. He says, if we love him and keep his commandments, he will what? He that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him. He will love us. And he says he will manifest himself to us. I love that promise. I love that promise that he will show up in my life. That he'll manifest himself to me. How can we come to know Christ more intimately? There are times all of us have prayed. I, I just would love to have a more intimate relationship with Christ. I love to, to see him in a greater way in my daily life. How can we know him more intimately? Jesus says, I will make myself known to him who loves me, who obeys me. You see, the test of love is obedience. And the reward of obedience is Christ's manifestation of himself to us. You and I this morning who have chosen to follow Christ have no liberty to disagree with him. We have no liberty either to disobey him. In John 13, 13, I find this very instructive to us. Jesus said to his disciples, you call me master and Lord, and you are correct. For I am your master and Lord. But you see, those are not just merely courtesy titles. To call him Lord has to bear witness to reality. You see, he is what we say he is. And we have no liberty to disagree with our Lord. And we have no liberty to disobey our master. You see, it's in submission to our Lord and to his word that we find freedom. That's where we find our freedom. May it ever be so for us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we acknowledge that we live in a difficult time. We live in a time when right is declared wrong and wrong is declared right. And this morning, we affirm that you have given us truth through your word. We affirm today that Jesus Christ is the only way to you. Father, we acknowledge the temptation of things. And Father, I pray again this morning that your spirit will speak to our hearts, that we will heed the warning of listening to the voices about us that call for acceptance, that define love as toleration. Father, may we reaffirm our commitment to you to your word 
for your truth alone sets us free. In Christ's name we pray.